The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Who are the Texas Rangers? Well, in this episode, they're not the Arlington, Texas-based baseball team that originated as the Washington Senators in 1961 after the original Washington Senators moved to Minnesota and became the Twins, and then the new Senators moved from Washington, D.C. to Texas in 1972. Uh Uh-uh. Today, the Texas Rangers we're going to be talking about is not the team that professional flamethrower Nolan, I have no problem putting Robin Ventura in a headlock and punching his noggin repeatedly, Ryan, through 301 strikeouts for 1989 and only 239 innings of work at the age of 42. When he can still throw 97 miles an hour of heat like a goddamn cyborg created by Skynet. We're not talking about those Rangers. We're talking about the original Texas Rangers before the baseball team. Before the Lone Ranger. Before Chuck Norris. Walker, Texas Ranger. Think Chuck Norris is tough? Well, he is. He's very tough. Much tougher than myself. He was Black Belt Magazine's 1969 Fighter of the Year and six-time World Karate Champion for fuck's sake. Dude held his own with Bruce Lee. But he's not as tough as the real Walker, Texas Ranger, Samuel Hamilton Walker, a man who escaped from the Mexican military to join the Texas Rangers and design, along with gunmaker Sam Colt, the infamous 44 caliber Walker Colt, the largest and most powerful black powder repeating handgun ever made. Or Frank Hamer, remember him? The man who came out of retirement to end Bonnie and Clyde's reign of terror. The man who, legend has it, survived 50 gunfights. How many gunfights have you been in? I'm sitting at zero and hoping to keep it that way. Right? No intention of a gunfight. Or how about John Harris Rogers, who had some of the, of the bone removed in his arm after being shot in the shoulder by bandits in 1889, but instead of retiring, had a Winchester rifle modified to fit his shortened arm and stayed in law enforcement for an additional 31 years. Who the fuck does that? Real-life heroes do that. So kick back, shut your yellow-bellied mouth, and prepare your soft 21st-century ass for some tales of true grit, tales of heroism, 
sacrifice, hardship, and the wild western badassery of the men who cried, One riot, one ranger. Slip off your spurs, pour yourself a tall glass of some warm whiskey, and get ready for thick hair to sprout forth from your chest in this old-time testosterone-laced edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm Dan Cummins, and thanks for mosing on back over to Time Suck. Today's Texas Ranger Time Suck is brought to you by ApplicationNinja.com, a company ran by one of your very own Time Suckers. How cool is that? Longtime Time Sucker who first emailed me months ago to say he liked the show, that he'd like to sponsor someday down the road, and that someday is today. You know what sucks in a good way about having your own business or running a business? Doing it your way. You know what sucks in a bad way? Not having time to run things your way because you're spending hours a week, time you don't have, figuring out uh, who to hire to take your business to the next level. This is where ApplicationNinja.com comes in. ApplicationNinja.com allows a business of any size to completely customize their employment application system online and do so within minutes. What other job application software offers you complete and total customization? No one. And if you think even for a second that someone else does, ApplicationNinja.com will send a real ninja to your door and kick your fucking nuts up into your goddamn throat. And if you think, but I don't have nuts, I'm a woman, so what? ApplicationNinja.com's ninja will kick someone else's nuts into your throat. Oh, sorry. But seriously, ApplicationNinja.com provides job board integration, pushing users open uh, jobs to tons of job sites, including Indeed, Glassdoor, Simply Hire, just name a few. And you get unlimited postings and applications. Whether you have one or whether you have 100 openings, you can post as many as you want or need for the same price of only $39 a month, making ApplicationNinja.com the most affordable and user-friendly application management software on the market. And unlike other application software, this one has Ninja in the title. How often do you get the opportunity to work with a Ninja? And you get a free 30-day trial. No contracts, cancel any time. So support a time sucker. Support yourself and your business. Help it run smoothly. Make your life easier. No matter how big or small your business is, whether you own it, manage it, or both, you can make it so much simpler, make the hiring process so much easier by heading to applicationninja.com today. Okay, time for a few thank yous. Uh, thanks to Lamar Jose, who's been dying for this episode, requesting uh, numerous times across numerous social media platforms for months. Hope it lives up to the expectations, brother. Uh, big thank you to Time Sucker Sarah Lilly, a new Time Suck intern and member of the Bojangles research team. She's a research machine, and I cannot thank her enough for organizing this episode's content and giving me everything I needed to give you guys a fine Texas-sized sucking. She gave me so much stuff. Couldn't fit it all in, but I, but I think I got the, the stuff that I found most interesting, and I, and I hope you uh, enjoy it. Thanks, as always, to all you suckheads, all you time suckers for all the iTunes reviews. Getting closer and closer to that Vlad the Impaler Dracula bonus suck. Uh, thanks for all the subscriptions. Used of the uh, use of the Amazon and PayPal buttons at timesuckpodcast.com for the recommendation for others to listen. Appreciate you spreading the suck. Uh, the suck has grown to somewhere around 100,000 people. Uh, actually, I think more, uh, depending just based on recent downloads. And, and it just blows my mind. I thought maybe, maybe I could get to that number by the end of the year if everything worked out like a dream. Can't believe it's here already. Uh, thanks for continuing to listen. I'm doing my best to stay on top of this, this time suck horse just fucking galloping forward. And I, and I love how hungry some of you are for the suck and how you continually want more. I really do love it. Uh, you want more episodes per week. 
I know a lot of you requested two episodes a week, uh, more silliness in the store. Uh, thanks for buying those sweet Bojangles summer tees uh, in addition to the flat earth and first generation tees, by the way. Uh, I know I'm out of numerous sizes in the, in the first couple t-shirts and I'm working to remedy that. And, uh, and I added a bunch of pictures of uh, Time Suckers wearing them last week to my Instagram at Dan Cummins Comedy. But, but I also know that, uh, you know, more of you uh, student suckers have been using the suck as a, as a resource for presentations and research papers. I never anticipated that, but I think it's fucking awesome. And, and I know you want book lists for the episodes, uh, you know, for research, for further reading, for to, to cite as a source and reports and things. You, you'd like downloadable show notes with bibliography for some more sucking. And I want to do all that. And, I, and we're going to do all that in time. For me, the end goal of this podcast is having an online community built on shared curiosity, a place where for a tiny membership fee of a few bucks a month, a fee I'd have to charge to hire someone to run this uh, new sweet Time Suck app I would like designed and a new website with tons of extra content, like lots of content. Uh, I want a place where you can have show notes for each episode. You can have a message board where you and other you know, listeners uh, can discuss the information thrown out into each episode as, as deeply as, you're, you know, as you want you know, you can update each other instead of just me, a place where you can meet other time suckers, form new friendships, maybe even form new romantic relationships built on a shared sense of humor and curiosity. Why not have a dating site, you know, on the new app? Fuck it. You know, kick off some serious sucking. I actually think that would be really cool. I hear women complain all the time, especially on social media, about how many gross bros before hoes type douchebags are out there in the dating pool. And I hear good dudes complain all the time about how women don't seem to be interested in finding good dudes. Let's change that. 99.9% of the hundreds of messages I get every month now are from people who seem super fucking cool. Whether they agree with me, disagree, almost always. I'm talking 99.9% of the time, super respectful and super cool. And I think it's time some of you cool single suckers found each other. You know, because if you're going to fuck somebody, why not fuck somebody cool? That, that could be the motto of the dating app, you guys. <laughs> fuck somebody cool. With an asterisk. At the bottom of the page, you could have, like, after getting to know them at least a little bit, respecting them as a human, blah, 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 and then, you know, uh, fucking them in a consensual manner according to their uh, tastes. But seriously, uh, it could be a place where all the possible show topics could be organized into a list, you know, because you keep sending them in, and, and maybe like, a, like an imager-type thing, you could vote up, upvote the topics you want to hear, downvote the ones you're, you're less curious about, and really, as a community, decide what, uh, you know, the next week's episode is going to be, at least one of them. Maybe one where I kind of pick out of your options and then one where you pick. I think, you know, democratize the suck. Let's do it. Let's get this app going. You know, have bonus uh, uh, episodes, kind of like a Talking Dead, Walking Dead thing, where I could have a Q&A episode each week, taking a discussion of the previous week's episodes even further. We could do so much cool shit. And, and we're going to. Uh, listenership has grown over tenfold since the beginning of this year because of you sharing this podcast with those around you. And if listenership can double one more time, if we can get to 200,000 people, I'm just going to figure it out. Uh, I promise I will just figure out how to make this thing a reality. We'll do it. So uh, so know that I read all those emails. I read all the messages. I'm, uh, I'm working as fast as I can to, uh, to give you what you want and give you what I want. I fucking love this. So that's my goal. I hope you're into it. And if you're listening and you happen to specialize in app and web development, because I don't know shit about either, uh, I can barely handle a WordPress website, uh, hit me up at admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Would love to talk to you about how we can take this to a really cool place. And now... Time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. This is the kind of shit that makes me want to launch that community I spoke of earlier with the app. Okay, first one says, I'm writing to let you know one of your podcast episodes helped with my last final of my college career. My final questions regarding the McMartin preschool case. 
Fortunately, I listen every week and got my suck on during the Scientology episode. Most of these topics are actually something discussed in class such as Jim Jones, Scientology, etc. I appreciate your time and effort into these podcasts. Also, if this makes it to air on Monday, you can give a shout out uh, to Eileen. Can you give a shout out to Eileen, my girlfriend of two years? Saturday, May 27th will be our two-year anniversary together, and I want to surprise her with this shout-out. Thanks again. Can't wait to hear from you. Keep on sucking, Andrew Ta. Well, uh, sorry I'm late. Sorry I'm late, Andrew. I, I got way behind on emails. Uh, trying to stay on top of those, coming up with a new system to do that. Uh, so sorry it took forever, but I, but I hope Eileen's listening now, and I hope you're still together. I uh, hope this shout-out is not just adding to the pain of a recent breakup where it all fell apart. I hope that's not the case. So congrats, you suckers. Hope you're happy. And, uh, and I'm glad you could use uh, some of the suck for some school stuff. And a super inspiring message. This is from Mac Woodbury uh, on Instagram, at mwoodbury99. He says, hey, Mr. Cummins, my name is Mac Woodbury. I'm an 18-year-old high school student in a Michigan prep school called Cranesbrook Kingswood. You are hands down my favorite comic, and I love the suck. I wanted to message you to say thank you. The past two years of my life have been very difficult. I've been boarding away with my family for four years now and have had to deal with a lot of shit by myself. All of freshman year, I was bullied and had no friends. Sophomore year was the same situation. Junior year was just as difficult, and when I actually got friends, they were expelled. I was diagnosed with depression following that. I'm not mentally healthy is what I'm getting at. Anyway, your humor is something that helps take my mind off the bad thoughts that constantly entangle my head. Your comedy and your endless curiosity is a reminder to me that there is good in the world I love this podcast. It has been a literal lifesaver. I hope one day to meet you, Master Sucker. Thank you for all the knowledge and laughs. Keep on sucking. And then a separate message. Just had a friend die from an accidental overdose. Acquired his heroin from the dark web. Sad day. Thanks for making me smile during hard times. Well, Mac, first off, so sorry life has been handing you, uh, handling you a little roughly lately. Second, uh, honored that I could help out in some small way. And third, condolences regarding your friend. And fourth, I love you, buddy. Love that you're finding humor amidst the darkness. Love that you're finding some curiosity in life amidst some death. And just honored to have you as a fan. Don't stop sucking, motherfucker. All right? Uh, and yeah, this is, again, I'm just so glad that there's just a little community developing where we uh, can find more than just a little knowledge and some laughs. That's, that makes me feel great, man. And I'm glad I could help in some small way. And last, a little bit of love. We're going to end on some love with this Time Suck update. This is from Michelle Kincannon on Instagram. She says, uh, my suckhead hub- husband introduced me to Time Suck a couple months back, and we love it. He's currently deployed, and even though we don't get to talk too often, he keeps listening overseas, and we keep checking in to chat about our thoughts on the episode. So thanks, Sergeant Sucker, for bringing two people on opposite sides of this flat earth a little closer. Hope you come to Maryland. When he gets back in the States, we'll be getting a babysitter and getting our suck on. Keep on sucking, Michelle. That is fucking beautiful, Michelle. The suck has brought together um, people from my own family as well. My kids and I have intense discussions about the subjects. I talk to my sister Donna more now than I have in years. Uh, she's going to help uh, research an episode. My dad and I have great talks about the topics. So do my wife and I. Uh, and even, even my in-laws recently. It just gives, uh, gives us all something to talk about. I've never been good at small talk. Uh, I've always found it maddening. And I just love having something interesting to dig into now. And, and, and so now let's get, let's get some even more interesting stuff to share. Thank you guys so much for all the emails. Uh, tall tales that are actually true. Let's talk about them, and let's suck on some Texas Rangers. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. All right, so who are they? Who the hell are the Texas Rangers? Well, over the past century, uh, two competing images of the Texas Rangers have emerged, both in scholarly studies and in popular thought. Uh, There's the cartoonishly brave and honorable version uh, presented by Professor Walter Prescott Webb of the University of Texas in 1935. Uh, He presented an image of men who were quiet, deliberate, righteous, 
Men who could be gentle and kind. Men who could also gaze calmly into the eye of a murderer, divine his thoughts, anticipate his action, and ride straight up to death. Men who knew no fear and called on unlimited reserves of courage. You know, just regular knights in shining armor. And then beginning in the 1960s, revisionist scholars drew a darkly contrasting portrait. They depicted a brutal, lawless ranger, one who as a soldier indiscriminately dehumanized and slaughtered Native Americans and Mexicans like uh, ruthless lawmen who systematically practiced Ley de Fuega, law of the fugitive, in which prisoners were routinely shot while supposedly trying to escape. Hard, cold, racist men who shot first and asked questions later. So who were they? Were they the preposterously virtuous heroes who uh, inspired Hollywood to produce the Lone Ranger TV series that ran from 1949 to 1957? Uh, the 1989 Lonesome Dove miniseries, some of my dad's favorite hours of television, by the way. Were they the men who inspired Chuck Norris's Walker, Texas Ranger that ran for eight seasons from 93 to 2001 and uh, somehow didn't manage, uh, didn't manage to produce one memorable, quotable line? Over 9,000 television minutes of programming uh, you don't hate but can't remember what exactly you watched half an hour after you're done watching it. Uh, impressive in a weird way. Or were they the villains more akin to the warden character in Paul Newman's Cool Hand Luke? You know, just what we've got here is failure to communicate. Just some, just, you know, it's kind of sadistic, uh, sadistic power trippers. I'm guessing, like almost everybody, you know, they were somewhere in the middle between bad and good. The real rangers probably weren't all good. Yeah, I'm sure they weren't. And, and, and I'm sure they weren't all bad either. But they were definitely tough as hell. All right, well, well, let's stop speculating. Let's start examining some facts. And then, you know, you draw your own conclusions as to whether they were you know, mostly brave men fighting for what was right and protecting people or mostly bloodthirsty killers who happened to be on the right side of a badge. Not much different than the men they tracked and killed. Or, you know, a little bit of both. So let's give an overview of the organization with a small time suck timeline and then bounce out and look a, a little more closely at some of its most famous uh, rangers. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Okay, so the, the beginning of the Texas Rangers in 1823, only two years after Anglo-American colonization formally began in Texas, Stephen F. Austin, an empresario, uh, a person who had been granted the right to settle on land in exchange for recruiting and taking responsibility for the new settlers, a man known as the founder of Texas hired 10 experienced frontiersmen as rangers for a punitive expedition against a band of Native Americans that had attacked some of his initial colonists. Now, the origin uh, has definitely added to their legend. They didn't start off as a trained army. You know, it was so much rougher than that. No barracks, no uniforms, just uh, just some dudes, some Americans living in Mexico. Some, uh, you know, uh, some of those first unofficial rangers, possibly citizens of Mexico, some of them would become citizens of Mexico, bringing their own guns from home, riding their own horses, sleeping out under the stars as they battle Native Americans and then later battle Mexicans uh, who had recently laid claim to Texas after winning independence from Spain in 1821. Uh, previously, Spain and the U.S. had disagreed about who actually owned Spain thanks to some ambiguous language detailing land boundaries in the Louisiana Purchase. You know, Thomas Jefferson was like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure the line should look this way. And then he kind of swooped, you know, way down towards Mexico when he was pointing at the map. And then the Spaniards were like, ah, no, I see it more kind of like a, kind of like this. And they'd sweep the line up to Oklahoma or Nebraska or somewhere. It's like there were two kids trying to divide up one cookie into, you know, quote unquote equal halves. Well, the U.S. had bought uh, approximately 820,000 square miles of land from Napoleon's France in 1803 
in the Louisiana Purchase, land Napoleon had recently acquired from Spain in a deal made in 1799. And then again, after the deal, both the Spaniards and the Americans thought they laid claim to the land that is now Texas. Meanwhile, I'm sure various uh, large Native American tribes, such as the Comanche and Cherokee, were like, uh, fuck all you people. Real cool how you assholes are fighting over which one of you owns the land we're still living on. Can you imagine that? You know, what if some kind of, what if, what if some new type of human with weapons unlike any weapons you've seen suddenly showed up in your backyard and started fighting over uh, your property? God damn, the tribe's got the shaft. You know, how much do Native Americans hate Europeans in 16th through 19th centuries during the big transition from Native control to European control? I'm sure there's a lot of hatred now still. You know, you've been living your hunter-gatherer lifestyle undisturbed for centuries by anyone other than, you know, other hunter-gatherers, you know, uh, you know, just the the military technology, you know, comparatively primitive. You have the occasional bow and arrow fight with other tribes. You throw some spears, take some scalps. Sucks to fight, but at least you got a fighting chance against your enemies, against all your enemies. And then here comes some cocky white assholes on horses. Native Americans didn't even have horses. Uh, not until the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortez introduced them to America in 1519. You know they hadn't been uh, there hadn't been horses in uh, uh, North America for hundreds, if not thousands, of years before that. And uh, and these assholes uh, they got their their gunpowder boomsticks. You know Native Americans they didn't have gunpowder. The biggest weapon Europeans had uh, was invisible uh, to them and the Native Americans. It was smallpox. You know, tribes hadn't built up immunity over centuries of exposure, and, and many times the battle with the tribe was over before a single shot had been fired, you know, with the initial settlers. And then these assholes, they, they just set up shop in your land. Don't ask permission, just do it. Most of your family gets sick, dies soon after they show up, and then if you get pissed and tell them to get off your property, they don't fucking care. And then when you snap because they don't care, and you kill a few of them, they call for a whole bunch of other white dudes to come and just fucking slaughter you kill far more than you kill, and somehow you're the savage. And look, I understand the world's been shaped uh, by war since uh, the very beginning. Uh, one civilization conquering the next, and, and I'm glad Europeans settled North America, because if they didn't, I wouldn't be here. But I still feel terrible for Native Americans. Holy shit, did they get fucked over. No matter who was fighting who, the Spanish, the Brits, the French, the Mexicans, the Americans, one group always lost, and that was the tribes. Even when they won, they lost. Because winning a battle here and there just meant that the nation whose citizens you attacked was going to fuck you over twice as hard as anyone has, has uh, you have ever fucked over. Ugh, the revenge was always worse than the initial attack. Oh, my God. But anyway, back to the rest of what life was like when the Rangers were forming in Texas. In 1819, back to the Louisiana, uh, Louisiana Purchase Disagreement, Spain and the U.S. were going back and forth about who, who should control Texas. And then in 1819, the adams onis Treaty was signed with Spain, which gave uh, – uh, Spain gave Florida – to the U.S. In exchange, the U.S. gave up its claim to Texas and let Spain have it. Also in 1819 was the Panic of 1819, the first time the, the new country of America, the United States, had a long, protracted economic collapse that lasted until 1821. And, and, and well, because of the Panic of 1819, some Americans wanted to leave the new country to create better financial opportunities for themselves, people like Stephen F. Austin. Stephen F. Austin moved roughly 300 American settlers into Spanish Texas in 1821, uh, in a deal, his father, Moses Austin, who worked out with the Spanish governor in 1820 to settle some of the land and manage it. But then on August 24th, 1821, Mexico achieved independence from Spain. And basically the deal with Stephen F. Austin is null and void. So Stephen fucking Austin, I assume that's what the F stood for, uh, traveled to Mexico City to work out a new deal with the new government and he got it done. He was still allowed to have his American settlers and be an empresario. And then the 1820s, all the way until 1836, a really weird time in the history of Texas uh, and Mexico. Uh, Mexico has now laid claim to the land in present-day Texas. 
you know, that the U.S. has ceded to Spain and, and they want to settle it. But they don't have enough people, so they encourage immigration. So they let some Americans settle it as long as those Americans agree to cultivate the land, take care of the land, govern themselves with these empresarios, uh, essentially, and become Mexican citizens and also convert to Catholicism. I, I love that part. Uh, you're welcome to settle our land and live amongst our people, but you will respect Mother Mary. You will respect the saints and the priesthood, or you can get the fuck out. Uh, how times have changed, though, right? In 1821, Americans were leaving America and heading to Mexico for better financial opportunities. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Uh, interesting thing to keep in mind presently, with a general stay-the-fuck-out-of-my-country vibe going around many parts of the U.S. of A. Uh, I'm not for letting in any and all immigrants and collapsing the entire economy. That's just ridiculous. But no one knows what the future holds. And someday, some of us could be begging some other nation to let us in so we can provide for our families. We're all just trying to get by and improve our lives at the end of the day. So, you know, let's play nice. Let's play nice as much as possible. Anyway, uh, Americans uh, move into Mexico with Stephen fucking Austin, Stephen fucking A. But the transition isn't smooth because Mexico is a brand new country and there is a significant amount of turmoil within its government. Mexico had nine different leaders during the first 12 years of its existence. There was military coups, constant wars, resignations, a lot of turnover. Uh, but the land these new settlers were getting made all this turmoil worth it. Those initial 300 settlers got 640 acres uh, for each head of the family, 320 acres more if there was a wife, 160 additional acres for each child, and 80 more acres for each slave. That's right, uh, slave. L let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about that word and uh, uh, you know what it, what it means and collectively unpucker our buttholes before we move on. Uh, remember how I talked a second ago? about uh, Native Americans always losing during this period of history? Well, African Americans were right there with them. Natives and Africans fighting for the right to claim who got the shittiest end of the shit stick. Examining this period of history is always hard because even the good guys had slaves, you know, most of the time, which begs the question, can you be a good guy and be a slave owner? And that's a tough question, but I think it's important to remember that just like African Americans didn't ask or want to be born into a period when they were enslaved, European settlers also didn't ask to be born into a period of history when other humans were being enslaved. And it's also worth noting that colonial Europeans did not invent slavery. That's, that's rarely talked about for some reason. Far from it. The point is rarely brought up in discussions of American slavery, uh, as if evil European settlers just invented the entire concept. Well, slavery was not some new evil white Americans concocted in their evil imperialistic uh, hearts. No, uh, African tribes have been enslaving each other for centuries. Middle Eastern civilization had slaves. Europeans had enslaved each other in various forms numerous times over throughout millennia. Uh, there have been slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in, in Asian civilizations. The Romans had slaves, etc. You know, it doesn't get talked about as much, but various Native American tribes uh, from the top of Canada all the way down to the bottom of South America also had slaves before Europeans showed up. It was in their history. Uh, throughout history, slavery has, uh, has also been instituted along racial lines in Europe, Africa, Asia, Americas. That uh, concept wasn't introduced by European colonists either. And I just bring all this up to illustrate that the world was just very fucking different back then. I think it's so easy to, be, to look back into history and say, well, how the fuck could they do that? I would never do that. Ah, bullshit. You're, you're, using, you're saying that now. You know, if you were born 200 years ago, statistically speaking, you probably would have done the same goddamn things. Don't kid yourself under the guise of some unreason unreasonably noble kind of revisionist thinking. You'd act the same way because you, you, you would think about life and equality in the comparatively sophisticated terms of today. You wouldn't think about it, sorry, about in, in the sophisticated terms of today. You'd be using your early 19th century noggin to do that thinking for you. 
And, and that brain isn't as good in some ways or as socially evolved as the brain you have now. Back then, slavery was just a way of life. Uh, you know, it was uh, when society in mass was only beginning to question it. So who knows how future humans will judge our current morals? I think about that. You know, why do you drive to work instead of riding a bike? The bike is better for both you and the environment. 200 years from now, if the ozone layer is fucking shot, maybe future humans will look back and think, fucking assholes. They were so selfish. They didn't care about the future. They didn't care about future generations. They just wanted to put their lazy asses, you know, in a car. But most of us don't think that way now. We just fucking drive because it's easier. Just the way things operate. So sorry. I probably went on a little too long with that part. I, I, I just know that whenever I run into the supposed good guys in a period of history when those guys had slaves, I, I just have this, oh, man, seriously, fuck. How am I supposed to think you're cool, George Washington, you, you dickhead slave-owning motherfucker? So I have to take a second to recalibrate my mind and remind myself that while slavery was never, ever cool, it was normal for the time in a way we'll never be able to truly understand now. But again, I digress. We're heading back to Texas. But before we get there, let's talk about staying safe, all right? Today's Texas Ranger Time Suck Timeline is brought to you by Simply Safe. You don't need 19th century Texas Rangers patrolling your property to get a good night's sleep. And I really doubt your neighbors would appreciate their horses and rifles. Getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially if you think you just heard a noise downstairs. All right, think about it. Ah, freaks me out when that happens. You know, what do you do in that situation? You know, you could, you could turn on all the lights, and keep watch, just not sleep. Check on your kids, look at, looking, looking on their beds every hour, sleep with one eye open, maybe hide and hope the intruder takes a different member of your household, leaves you alone, or you can rest easy, knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. I can't imagine traveling and leaving my wife and kids alone without a home security system, and Simply Safe is the security system you need, and it's the one you can easily afford. When you install your Simply Safe home security system, you're arming your home with powerful sensors that actually tell you if a door opens or if a window breaks. There's a 105 decibel siren, you're going to hear that, that alerts you at the first sign of trouble. 105 decibels. And a dedicated team of security professionals watching over you 24-7 ready to send the police. With Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts. And around-the-clock monitoring is 15 bucks a month. Only 15 bucks a month. So don't spend another night second-guessing your home safety. Get Simply Safe and get some rest. Go to simplysafe.com slash listen and get a special 10% discount when you order today. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash listen. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E slash L-I-S-T-E-N for 10% off of your order. Simplysafe.com slash listen. Okay, now that you're safe, let's get back to the weird impresarial period of Texas's U.S. settlement history. Stephen fucking A. Austin's compensation for service in obtaining land, duly surveyed, uh, with title delivered at his expense, was to be at a rate of 12 and a half cents an acre. A colonist could reduce the normal grant to fit his or her, uh, well, <laughs> I just added my own uh, 21st century brain there. I was going to say his or her resources, but the women weren't allowed in on the deal. Uh, his resources, or with Austin's permission, augmented. Uh, Austin's permit was granted by Spanish uh, officials. He'd make some money bringing col colonists to settle the land. The settlers get to be landowners uh, for working the land. Uh, the Native Americans get killed if they don't get the fuck off the land. The slaves get beat for being unlucky uh, uh, enough to live on that land. And Mexico gets to expand the boundaries of its land. So everybody wins uh, except slaves and natives. Uh, they get fucked over as they did constantly in the 19th century. But then uh, tensions 
started to mount between Mexico's new government and the Stephen fucking A. Austin crew. The government keeps changing the law regarding empresarios, and Stephen has to keep getting exemptions for his sellers to keep from getting kicked the fuck out of Texas. Super annoying. He is like so over it, you guys. And then Mexico abolishes slavery in 1829. When Vicente Guerrero, uh, a hero in Mexico's fight for independence from Spain, becomes uh, Mexico's second president. He was half African, half uh, mestizo, which is a mix of Spanish and indigenous Mexican. Look at that. Mexico, figuring that shit out 30 years before the U.S. The slave-owning settlers are not fans of this. This was not the deal they signed up for. They're not interested in releasing their slaves. Uh, They're very content to remain uh, dehumanizing uh, racist profiteers. Meanwhile, more settlers have been moving in uh, to Texas from America and just squatting on the Mexican land that Mexico doesn't have the power or the manpower to patrol. They, you know, they've just finished fighting the Spaniards, and now they're in constant battles with Apaches and Comanches who are attacking their settlers. And the Mexicans aren't happy to discover that American settlers are supplying the Apaches and Comanches with guns to fight the Mexicans. Uh, things are getting muy mal. April 6, 1830, Mexico bans any further Americans from immigrating to Mexico. Uh, they're pissed. Now tensions are really building between American settlers and the Mexican government. Adding even further to this tension, Americans keep pouring into Texas illegally. And again, the irony of talking about this now. Complete bizarro world uh, flipped around. Americans just pouring into Texas, you know, uh, i.e. Mexico, illegally. And the new illegal American settlers don't give a shit about the Mexican government or converting to Catholicism. Uh, They start wearing t-shirts to say, fuck Mother Mary. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, the men start jerking off openly in front of priests, uh, most of whom kind of into it. The women start wearing crosses between their giant fake breasts, and they have contests to see who can give the priests uh, the biggest boners uh, so big that they can see them poking out of the priest robes. Uh, it never works because the priests are usually thinking about d- the dudes jerking off. Uh, okay. All right. All right. All right. I didn't take it quite that far. That got weird. Uh, but they really don't even pretend to be Catholic. They don't care about any of the laws. And uh, Mexico is not happy about it. And then after a decade of political and cultural clashes, clashes between the Mexican government and the increasingly large population of American settlers in Texas, hostilities erupted violently in October 19, or 1835. In the early 1830s, the Mexican army had loaned the citizens of Gonzales one of the first uh, Anglo settlements in Texas in a town of about 7,000 people today, a small cannon for protection against Native American raids. But then after a Mexican soldier bludgeoned a Gonzalez resident on September 10th, 1835, probably arguing about Mother Mary, uh, tensions between the government and the town grew to the point that the government didn't feel comfortable leaving the settlers in charge of that cannon. And a small force of about 100 men came to take the cannon back, about 100 Mexican soldiers. And the settlers, uh, fearing they'd be slaughtered if the cannon was taken, were like, uh, hey guys, uh, uh, mucho fuck that mierda. And in the early hours of October 2, approximately 140 Anglo-Texan volunteers attacked the Mexican soldiers. The skirmish was brief. Uh, Only two Mexican soldiers were killed and one Texan wounded, but the Mexicans retreated without their cannon. News of this, you know, uh, victory, if you can call it that, I guess it was, a small victory, but a victory, spread throughout Texas, and just like that, a revolution has begun. And in the middle of this new revolution, the Texas Rangers are officially born. 1835, November 24th, 1835, newly appointed Texas lawmakers fighting for independence from Mexico institute a specific force known as the Texas Rangers. This initial organization had a complement of 56 men and three companies, each officered by a captain and two lieutenants, whose immediate superior and leader had the rank of major and was subject to the commander-in-chief of the regular army. The major was responsible for enlisting recruits, enforcing rules, and applying discipline. Officers received the same pay as United States privates, 
buck 25 a day. However, they supplied their own mounts, equipment, arms, and rations. At all times, they had to be ready to ride, equipped with a good and sufficient horse with 100 rounds of powder and ball. In these early days, rangers usually joined for uh, three to six months. Uh, this would change to longer periods later on. There was no uniform or flag, and there wasn't the traditional military regulation and discipline. They didn't have time for that shit. They were scrambling to form this uh, new country, and they just had to get stuff done. They had to get it done quickly. And, and I love that they weren't drafted military. You know, they were just the toughest frontiersmen around who were willing to ride and die uh, for their for their new little colony they were forming. And the first leader of the Rangers, uh, the first major, was 31-year-old Robert McAlpin Williamson, a man who at the age of 15 had contracted tuberculosis arthritis that caused his right leg to permanently stiffen at a 90-degree angle. In order to walk, a wooden leg had to be fastened to his knee. Because of this, he later acquired the nickname Three-Legged Willie. And this three-legged son of a bitch would later receive 640 acres for participating in the Battle of San uh, Jacinto, uh, a battle he fought in on horseback. Bojangles keeps a photo of Willie above the bar in his den to gaze at for inspiration. Uh, not a lot of uh, three-legged heroes out there to be inspired by. How fucking crazy is that? One of his legs is permanently bent at a 90-degree angle. He cannot straighten one of his legs, ever. And he's like, you know what? I want to fight with the Rangers. Someone had to have said something like, oh, hey, uh, Willie, how about, how about you help in a different way? That'd be cool. Maybe you could sit at a desk and file papers. Or, you know, you could sit at a desk and uh, help plan battles. Or you know what? What if you sat at a desk and stayed out of everyone's way? And he was like, fuck you, Gary. I'm not just joining the Rangers. I'm leading the Rangers. I will hop upon my steed and I will shed Mexican blood. And they were like, wow, all right. All right, Willie. Shit, Jesus, calm down. I hate it when you get that crazy look in your eye. It creeps me the fuck out. Fine, you can you can lead the Rangers. I'm putting a picture of this three-legged Willie up at timesuckpodcast.com along with the episode description so you can see I'm not bullshitting, by the way. Uh, there's even a statue of this dude, this badass son of a bitch in Georgetown, Texas. Uh, it's, it's there today. It's across the county courthouse. Well, okay, February 23rd through April 21st, 1836, the Rangers joined the fight for independence, uh, helping recover supplies from the ruins of the Battle of the Alamo, uh, then they joined the fight at the Battle of San Jacinto uh, on April 21st, where the cry, remember the Alamo, was heard, the, uh, the battle that won Texas independence from Mexico. The earliest Texas Rangers started to make a, a name for themselves in these early battles of independence. March 2, uh, 1836, uh, the Republic of Texas is formed. It announces itself to the world as a new North American nation. The U.S. wants to annex Texas and make it a state, and Texas is into this as well, but Mexico threatens a, a war with the U.S., and the U.S. backs off initially. Um, so they refuse to, to recognize Texas as a new nation. And, and Texas actually doesn't become a state until December 29th, 1845. And during this early independent period, the Texas Rangers really get going, right? Because Texas is, is kind of on its own. I mean, they're allied with the U.S. in a sense. But again, the U.S. doesn't want to uh, – can't like really bring them into the country because they don't want to piss off Mexico yet. And so, yeah, again, they're on their own. They're independent. And in this independence is when the Texas Rangers really get going. Uh, you know, the Texas Rangers are, are formed to kind of uh, protect the Texan settlers from Mexican soldiers who refuse to accept Texas's autonomy from, uh, you know, cattle rustlers, gunslingers, uh, hostile Native American tribes, etc. I had no idea uh, Rangers really became a thing long before Texas was even part of the U.S. Well, in 1845, uh, Texas joins the Union. On December 29th, 1845, uh, Texas is admitted to the United States as a, as a 28th state being the 15th state in the order of admission to the Union after the original uh, 13 colonies. And Mexico is pissed. Muy angrioso. 
But before we find out how angry they were, uh, let's check in with another awesome sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Away. Away offers high-quality luggage that is designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. Uh, Available in nine colors, four sizes, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the Away suitcase is lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. I have one, and it is awesome. Seriously, if you travel, you need this. It features a TSA-approved combination lock, four 360-degree spinner wheels, and a patent-pending compression system to help overpackers. Better yet, both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. A single charge uh, will power your iPhone five times, for example. You hear what I just said? The suitcase doubles as a USB charger that can charge your iPhone five times over. That's so cool. Gone are the days, you know, when I'm sitting five gates down from the gate I'm supposed to be departing from because it was the only place I could find a crummy outlet, like one of those weird ones uh, where it's so loose, you actually have to hold the plug into the outlet while you're charging your phone because it's at 2% and you're trying to get it to 15. I cannot tell you how many times I've had that exact experience flying around over the years. It sucks, but you know what? It's gone now. It is gone now. That is the best luggage feature that has come around uh, since wheels were added to luggage. And thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for uh, for you uh, for life. All right, how awesome is that? I love the way mine looks also. Uh, I got the black carry-on because I like how easily it fits into the uh, overhead compartments. It still has plenty of room for my toiletry bag, travel podcast equipment for recording on the go when I need to, clothes for the weekend, everything I need. I like the way it looks, classic and nice, but not flashy. And it has that charger that makes me so happy and gets me tons of compliments from strangers. You know, just like, oh, well, that's awesome. Is, is that a charger? That's, that's great, that's a good idea. Like as if I thought of it instead of the people at away. So try it away for 100 days, vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it, and if at any point uh, you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. Shipping is free within the lower 48 states, so you got nothing to lose, and you are going to save money getting it because you're a time sucker. For 20 bucks off an awesome away suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash timesuck and use promo code timesuck during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck for 20 bucks off your away suitcase. Do it now. You will love it. All right. Meanwhile, back in 1846, when people had to travel by fucking wagons and died all the time, it was way worse than airports. Uh, Mexican General Mariano Arista, acting on behalf of Mexican President, President uh, Mariano Paredes, uh, crosses the Rio Grande in force in April of 1846 to besiege the isolated Fort Texas just across the border where Brownsville, Texas is now located and the Mexican-American War is on. Esta encendido. Uh, U.S. General Zachary Taylor is expected is expecting the move, and on May 1st, 1846, Taylor uh, marches most of his troops to his supply depot at Point Isabel on the Gulf of Mexico. It was there the veteran U.S. general would meet an incoming naval fleet carrying supplies needed to endure an extended siege. General Taylor left Major Jacob Brown, the U.S. 7th Infantry, and portions of the 3rd Art- Artillery, some 550 men, to hold the post on the river. And then General, General Zachary Taylor dispatches uh, an express to the settlements of Texas for aid. And the Rangers hear and respond in an incredible short space of time. The Texas Rangers were there to rescue him. The Ranger regiments of Jack Hayes and Woods were en route, uh, as was Sam Walker and the incomparable troops of Peerless Ben McCulloch. Uh, the first Texans to reach General Taylor's army in the Rio Grande were two independent companies of mounted men commanded by Captain Samuel H. Walker and John T. Price. The former participated in the first two engagements, those of Palo Alto and uh, Resaca de la Palma, both of which were fought in Texas. The second and third regiments of mounted men were present at the capture of Monterey in September 1846. 
On September 27, 1846, seven companies of Texas Rangers, commanded by Colonel Hayes and Lieutenant Colonel Walker, participated in the storming of Independence Hill, a strongly fortified and commanding position. It was in the war with Mexico that the mounted volunteers first clothed the name of Texas Rangers with its traditional glory. 1847. In April and May 1847, another regiment of mounted rangers commanded by Colonel John C. Hayes was organized at San Antonio, being mustered into the service of the United States for 12 months or the duration of the war. It consisted of two battalions, five companies each. The command was attached to the army under General Winfield Scott and started on the victorious march to the city of Mexico. Hayes' men remained in Mexico until peace was declared on February 2, 1848, a peace that the Rangers had a huge hand in giving Texas. Later in the spring of 1848, with the war over, the Rangers are temporarily disbanded. Their duty is complete. The U.S. Army takes over the duty of protecting Texans from various native tribes, a perpetual war with the settlers, which had been you know, a, a big portion of the Rangers' duty since their inception. But unlike uh, the Rangers, uh, they don't meet the tribes on their own land. They're stationed in various forts. Some of them many, many miles apart from each other and from the settlers. And that just doesn't work. A different level of vigilance was required to keep the settlers safe. When a large band of natives raid uh, and then kill various settlers across the state in the spring of 1848, Texas Governor George T. Wood uh, formed six new ranger companies. Then when tribes attacked settlers near Corpus Christi in early 1849, two more ranger companies, totaling 150 men, are formed. They're back in business. And their business is mostly fighting Native Americans around this time. Uh, the Rangers would battle Comanches and other tribes in various battles right up until the Civil War, and then they would get right back at it after the war. I'll get into more details as we examine the lives of individual Rangers later on. Uh, February 1st, 1861, uh, Texas secedes from the Union and joined the Confederacy in the Civil War. 1873, following the Civil War, the Texas Rangers are replaced by the Texas State Police. But then Governor Richard Koch and the state legislature uh, recommissioned the Rangers in 1873 after the TSP proves to be ineffective and they further define themselves, define themselves as Wild West legends. During these times, many of the Rangers' myths are born, such as uh, their success in capturing or killing notorious criminals and desperados, including bank robber Sam Bass, gunfighter John Wesley Harden, uh, their involvement in the Mason County War, their decisive role in the defeat of the Comanche, uh, the Kiowa and Apache peoples. Also during these years, the Rangers uh, suffer their only defeat in their history uh, when they, you know, of, of any substance when they surrender at the Sal Salinero Revolt in 1877 when a citizen militia of roughly 500 Mexican settlers overtook 25 Texas Rangers in a dispute over local natural resources. I said actually said Mexican-American Mexican uh, 500 settlers. Despite the fame of their deeds, the conduct of the Rangers during this period was very questionable at best. Uh, in particular, uh, Leander H. McNelly and his men used ruthless methods that often rivaled the brutality of their opponents, if not exceeded that their opponent's brutality, such as taking part in uh, summary executions, executions in which a person is accused of a crime and immediately killed without benefit of a full and fair trial. Uh, they also induced confessions uh, with the use of torture and intimidation. 1909, the Rangers redeemed their reputation when they were present as security in El Paso at the summit of President William Howard Half, <laughs> Taft uh, and Mexican President uh, Porfirio Diaz in 1909 and, present, and prevent the assassination of both leaders. Frederick Burnham, a world-renowned Army scout from Britain, hired to head a security detail for the Taft and CR for President Taft and CR Moore, a Texas Ranger uh, discovered a man holding a concealed palm pistol standing at the El Paso Chamber of Commerce building along the procession route. Burnham and Moore captured and disarmed the would-be assassin with only uh, within only a few feet of Taft and Diaz. 
Given the lawlessness near the Mexican border, uh, it was the responsibility of the Rangers to preserve law and order at any cost. Uh, following this high point was another really low point for the Rangers. January 13, 1918, hundreds of new Rangers were hired by the state with no regard for their background due to the bandit wars. Uh, between, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I give that date. That date's something that's going to come up in a bit. Between 1910 and 1915, uh, hundreds of new rangers were hired by the state with no regard for their background yet because of the bandit war. Uh, on the Texas-Mexican border, Mexican revolutionaries and bandits were attacking towns, ranches, and railroads in the state and needed more men to patrol their border, and they needed them fast. And many of the new rangers took advantage of their new positions of power and brutalized uh, Mexican citizens and also Mexican-American citizens. On January 13, 1918, rangers slaughtered 15 Mexican men ages 16 to 72 in Port Venier, Texas, an inquiry by the Texas legislature revealed that rangers were responsible for the deaths of anywhere from 300 to 5,000 people, primarily Hispanics, from 1915 to 1919. Very dark period of Texas ranger history known as the La, La, Matanza, La Matanza or the Massacre, when the rangers killed law-abiding Mexican-Americans along with lawless Mexican bandits. This is where that shoot-first-ask-questions-later image of the rangers comes from. Uh, the subsequent investigation uh, re uh, results in the reduction of the Rangers' force uh, to four companies of only 17 men each. So they're a very small group after that dark period. And then the 1930s, the Great Depression, uh, forced both the federal and state governments to cut down on personnel and the funding of uh, various organizations. And the number of commissioned officers of Texas Rangers was reduced to only 45 total. So now they're, they're even smaller. Uh, and the only means of transportation afforded to these Rangers is free railroad passes or using their personal horses. So they're a very bare-bones op bare operation, kind of like when they very first unofficially started again. Uh, 1933, the agency has dealt a further blow when they support Governor Ross Sterling in his re-election campaign in 1932 in Texas. Uh, but after his opponent, Miriam Amanda Ma Ferguson, wins, she proceeds to discharge all serving rangers in 1933. So now they're kind of done. But then, you know, uh, they'll be back in a few years. 1934, former Ranger Frank Hamer is brought back into action out of retirement for a special assignment at the request of Colonel Lee Simmons, head of the Texas prison system. He is to track down and kill Bonnie and Clyde, and he does so on May 23rd. And then 1935 to the present day, uh, Depression-era budget cutbacks created tre tremendous disorganization within the Texas state law enforcement. You know, in 1933 and 1934, and then the legislature brought back the Rangers one final time. The Rangers were merged with the Texas Highway Patrol under a new agency called the Texas Department of Public Safety, the DPS. They were given an initial annual budget of 450000 and since 1935, each Texas Ranger has been allowed to kill one citizen, no questions asked, no trial, no arrest, just to make things a little fucking easier. All right, that's not true. That's that, that, that one part's not true about them being able to kill somebody. But, you know, uh, kind of awesome, kind of scary, uh, if it was. Uh, with minor rearrangements over the years, uh, the 1935 reforms uh, have ruled the Texas Rangers organization until the present day. Hiring new members, which uh, historically in moments have been largely a political decision, uh, is now achieved through a series of examinations and merit evaluations. Promotion relies on seniority, performance is uh, – and performance in the line of duty. Today, the historical importance and symbolism of the Texas Rangers is such that they are protected now by a statute uh, from ever being disbanded again. According to their own website, the Texas Rangers Division is a major division within the Texas Department of Public Safety with lead criminal investigative responsibility for the following. Major incident crime investigations, unsolved crime slash serial crime investigations, public corruption, public integrity investigations, officer-involved shooting investigations, and broader security operations. The fucking big stuff. The big stuff that goes on in Texas. Big crimes in Texas. You, you kill a few people. 
All right, the Texas Rangers, they're going to be fucking coming after you. All right, they're not going to be on horses anymore. Uh, they got they got fucking cell phones, GPS, and some shit we don't even know about. And the Texas Ranger Division is comprised of 222 full-time employees, including 162 commissioned rangers and 60 support personnel, including administrative staff, border security operations center, joint operations and intelligence centers, and the special weapons and tactics teams. They continue to commit brave acts of heroism to this day. Now let's really have some fun and examine the exploits of some of their more famous members over the years and hop out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, now we know a little bit about the history of Texas and the formation of the Texas Rangers. I know it's a lot of information, but, you know, just wanted to give you a sense of uh, kind of how they formed out of this kind of chaotic period in Texas history. And so now let's talk about the, you know, the guys who fought within their ranks. You know, tough guys. I've, I've always been fascinated with tough guys. And let's forget, you know, if we can for a moment, forget about the, any kind of racial stuff or anything and just think about what it was like to be a dude who was willing to, you know, uh, give up your life. In, in battle after battle after battle, uh, back in a day when there wasn't emergency room doctors, you know, when doctors had saws, <laughs> fucking whiskey scoff, whiskeys, you know, laudanum, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I've just been fascinated with those, these, these, how tough these guys were. You know, I've just ever since I was a little kid, I saw my dad uh, get into a fist fight once uh, at an intersection when I was about five years old, uh, when we had left Riggins for a few years to live in Anchorage, Alaska. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what, man, seeing your dad trade blows with a, a couple of other dudes uh, in an intersection intense childhood experience leaves quite an impression on you Uh, around that same time my dad taught me how to throw a punch but despite my rage uh, that i've had since childhood i've never uh, actually punched another person in in the face you know in like a fight like 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 a real punch i've threatened people i've pushed people uh hit a neighbor kid in the stomach a few times threw a kid off my porch once in college (laughs) bounced bounced down the stairs uh you know after dragging him out of my house threw a threw a guy off stage once at a comedy show but punching in the face always just seemed excessive you know uh, I would really have to be in fear for my safety or the safety of someone around me to just start punching somebody in the face. And that's just, you know, never happened. Knock on wood. Hopefully it doesn't, doesn't happen. Uh, I've been punched in the face numerous times in grade school, in fact, uh, and I remember deserving every hit. I don't remember what I said in any of the instances, but I do remember like I'd be riling some kid up and eventually he couldn't take it and he'd punch me in the mouth, uh, you know, usually where he punched me, somewhere around the mouth. <laughs> and then I would just kind of shrug it off and be like, yeah, Nah, yeah, I deserve that. You know, just walk away with that feeling. And then I just would go on with my life. The only kid I ever really uh, fought growing up was a neighbor, kid, a neighbor kid a year younger and bigger than me, this kid Paul. And one day he turned a garden hose on my sister when she was playing on the front porch, my sister Donna. She came in crying, and I ran out and told Paul if he did it again, I was going to jump the fence, I was going to beat his ass. And well, son of a bitch did it again. So I jumped the fence, he tried punching me in the face, I ducked his punch, grabbed him, threw him on the ground, uh, jumped on top of him, and I punched him in the stomach several times. And he started bawling. We must have been around 11, 12 years old at this time. And I remember I had a clear shot at punching him in his sniveling face. I didn't like his face, but I still didn't punch it. I felt I'd made my point, you know? So I let him get up and let him run into his house crying. Uh, He's bawling his eyes out. (laughs) Before you think I'm too nice of a guy for letting him up, I also whipped Paul in a separate incident with a willow stick about 10, 15 times on his back, leaving giant whelps uh, after he uh, whipped me one time and didn't even give me a welt. I guess I said whelps the first time, but you know what I fucking meant, whelps. Uh, I've always been too much of a slow thinker, I think, to be a good fighter. It isn't naturally, you know, I don't, I don't make like lightning fast decisions in intense situations. I like to try and weigh my options, think about consequences. Uh, and I feel like good fighters don't generally sit around and deliberate. You know, they take action, quick and decisive. 
I've always admired that quality. You know, they don't think, well, what if I, what if I hurt this guy really bad? And then I, then I get in legal trouble and then he sues me and I lose my home. Now I can't save up and buy a new home because you know, the debt's just too much and now I'm depressed and my home life's full of stress and sadness, which leads me to another divorce. And then I'm just miserable the rest of my life. You know, they don't fucking think that they just start fucking punching and they deal with repercussions when the punching's done. I'm in awe of that. I really am. I've always wanted to be that bold and violently impulsive. <laughs> Probably shouldn't want that, but I, but I do. Uh, at least, you know, once or twice. It must, feel, it must feel so good to have someone say or do something unacceptable to you, and then you just punch them in their fucking face. Drop them to the ground. Go about your day. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you uh, uh, about two of my favorite tough guy stories before we get into the Texas Ranger tough guy stories. Uh, the first one, this is kind of like, you know, what made me want to do this episode, just my fascination with these dudes. The first one is a dude I, I worked alongside of when I was in high school working for my dad in construction. His name was Albert, and when I met him, he must have been in his late 40s, but he looked older, mostly bald, up top with a gray beard. You know, he had a, had a thicker build, but not really muscular. He looked like a guy who used to be muscular but hadn't worked out in, you know, many years. Kind of like a grandpa who used to be a tough guy, but now only looks tough when he rides his Harley, you know. But Albert was still super fucking tough. Uh, he was a quiet dude. You wouldn't think it. He's a quiet dude. He was friendly. kept to himself. And I found out from another guy I was working with, uh, a guy my dad had beat up on two separate occasions, actually, when they were in their late teens, early 20s, uh, that this guy, Albert, had served in Vietnam for a few years where apparently he was a member of a special forces unit. Uh, Albert never said shit about his war exploits, and I've noticed that generally the toughest guys aren't the ones telling you how tough they are. Uh, they don't talk about being tough. They just do tough shit when, when it needs to be done. And I, and I never saw Albert get mad, but apparently he had a temper, especially when it came to other dudes hitting on his wife, Jessie, who is about half his age and just gorgeous. And, and guys, to their detriment, often assumed Albert was his wife's harmless father. And my dad told me a story about how one day, uh, a year or so after I last worked with him, I, I'm off in college, Albert and Jesse were in a potluck dinner in my little uh, in, in a little bar in Riggins, Idaho, my hometown. Two Forest Service dudes from out of town started hitting on Jesse as Albert sat and ate his dinner. And then my dad, who was at his dinner, said that all of a sudden, he looks over at a small crowd of people who have gathered over the freshly knocked out bodies of two men laying on the barroom floor. And then he saw Albert sitting there, calmly eating his dinner. It all happened so fast, it took a while for everyone to process what had just happened, except for the few people who saw it, you know, who were eyewitnesses. Well, what had happened is the guy said something to Jesse that Albert found unacceptable, and he just casually stood up, faced those guys, didn't even uh, uh, say anything from what I remember, threw two punches and knocked out a grown man with each punch. I didn't see this myself, but my dad swears to me this happened. What the fuck? Knocking two dudes out in epic fashion didn't even stop Albert from returning to his potluck meal. He just pop, pop, turns around, sits back down, starts eating again. You know, I don't know. I guess after several tours of being a special forces, you know, uh, military person in Vietnam, uh, he just he had just become that casual of violence. That is some fucking tough guy shit. My God. Uh, the only other man I've met who seemed to me as tough as, as Albert was another middle-aged, normal-sized man I met in South Africa years ago. Uh, when I was doing a comedy festival there, we were down in, uh, where I met this guy was in uh, Johannesburg. And just like with Albert, uh, this guy, this guy's name was uh, Buzz, and other people knew that Buzz, who at the time was around 50 years old, you know, about 5'6", weighed about 180, stocky, but not full of intimidating muscles. Other people told me that he, is, he had been in uh, various wars around South Africa as a chopper pilot, and, and basically kind of as a mercenary is what they hinted at. And, and one night, a bunch of us comics, Buzz, several of Buzz's friends, and uh, Buzz's wife and young adult kids were having dinner. And Buzz's son was a huge, muscular rugby player, a lot bigger than his dad, uh, maybe about 18, 19 years old. And Buzz was busting his son's balls, and I joked that he better watch out or his son's going to slap him around. Uh, 
because the son was, you know, was a big looking dude. And his son told me like, uh-uh, no, nah. he goes, I'm not messing with my dad. And, you know, laughing, joking, but you could tell there was some like truth behind it. Later, I asked him uh, when we're all just kind of mingling, having drinks, I asked his son about how tough bus was. And he tells me this story that's always stuck with me. He said it happened a few years before. He said his mom and dad were, were heading home from church. They're all in the car. Him and his sister, the teenagers, are in the back seat. Some dude starts flipping his dad off in traffic in a moment of road rage. And his dad, he doesn't like this going down in front of his family. Uh, he said his dad never said anything to this guy. But then when they were parked next to each other at red light, the guy just kept squawking. Obscenities flying. Doesn't like this going down in front of his wife and kids. And he said that his dad, uh, Buzz, just calmly unbuckled his seatbelt, got out of the car, walked around to the man yelling at him, and punched him in the fucking face through his open window. And then punched him a few more times, literally beating him unconscious. And then he drug the guy out of his own car, tossed him over his shoulder, walked him to the side of the road, threw his ass off into the fucking embankment, lets him roll down, walks back to his car, sits down, buckles his seatbelt, drives off, never speaks of it again. Never speaks of it again. Are you fucking kidding me? His son brought that up to me in private, away from his dad. If I did that, I would tell that story every day for the rest of my life. And again, I wasn't there. I didn't see it firsthand, but this guy seemed to really, really be telling me the truth. Oh my God. I would be shoehorning that story into every conversation I could for the rest of my life. That'd be the fucking coolest story I would have in my story bank by far. You know, I'd be always talking about it. Okay, man, cool new car. Cool new car, man. Good for you. Did you buy it or lease it? Oh, you bought it? Oh, that's a good call, man. That's a good call. Hey, you know what? That reminds me of the time I bought this dude a one-way ticket to Knockoutsville. He wouldn't shut his mouth, so I walked over. I punched him out, and I threw him over the fucking ditch. Yes, I am the baddest man alive. I'm just constantly talking about it. Thank you so much. That steak was excellent. We'll definitely come back here again. No, no, I don't need a receipt. And neither did the dude who I served four consecutive knuckle sandwiches to in the middle of the goddamn street. Knocked him out, drug him out of his own car, threw him in the ditch. How about that shit? I, I did that. I, I did. Honey, tell him how I did that. Tell our waiter how I did that, how you saw me do that. I'd have, a, I'd have like a, uh, just maybe just like a story about it printed on a t-shirt and just wear it every day. Man, Buzz and Albert, those are the kind of guys who could have been Texas Rangers. Well, here are some real ones. We got Benjamin McCulloch, 1811 to 1862. Benjamin McCulloch was one of the first Texas Rangers to make a name for himself early on. Uh, he was born Periwinkle von Twinkletoes, but he hated the way that sounded. And he made a new name for himself, Benjamin McCulloch. Way better and more fitting for a ranger. Uh, no, but seriously, McCulloch was born on November 11th. Uh, 1811, in Rutherford County, Tennessee. In 1835, he, along with his brother Henry and Davy Crockett, uh, made their way to Texas. Two of Ben's older brothers briefly attended school, taught by a close neighbor and family friend in te Tennessee, another man who would do some damage in Texas, Sam Houston. And they knew he was setting some stuff up for himself in Texas. So following the move of his friend, uh, Sam Houston, the founder of Sam's Club, kidding again, Sam Houston would go on to become president of the Republic of Texas and help Texas transition into statehood. Uh, well, due to the measles, uh, ben didn't make it to the Alamo before it fell, which most likely saved his life. Kind of like how Milton Hershey was going to be on the Titanic, but had to leave early because of business, right? Do you ever think about that? How close we came to never having peanut M&Ms? Uh, at the outbreak of the Mexican War, McCulloch raised a command that became Company A of Colonel Jack Hayes' 1st Regiment, Texas Mounted Volunteers. Showing great skill in tracking and scouting during the Mexican War, McCulloch earned the distinction of Chief Scout for General Zachary Taylor's Army. At the Battle of San uh, Jacinto, uh, McCulloch uh, commanded one of the famed Twin Sisters, two little six-pound cannons made in Cincinnati and donated by Ohioans uh, to the Texans to aid in their fight with Mexico. These two little cannons, known as six-pounders, were the only artillery uh, the Texans had. 
and McCulloch's use of them won from Houston a battlefield commission as first lieutenant. On April 21st, 1836, during the Battle of San Jacinto, remember the Alamo, uh, near the banks of uh, Buffalo Bayou, the Texas Army struck at Santa Ana's unsuspecting troops. The twins were near the center of the Texans' line of battle and 10 yards in advance of the infantry. Their first shots were fired at a distance of 200 yards, and their fire was credited with helping to throw the Mexican forces into confusion and significantly aiding the infantry attack of the Texans. During this battle, the twins fired handfuls of musket balls, broken glass when that ran out, horseshoes when that ran out. That was the only ammunition the Texans had access to. Horseshoes and broken glass shot out of a cannon. That is some 19th century just Texas Ranger shit right there. I can hear Ben now. Just throw some more, throw some of that broken glass into the cannon. Oh, uh, we've got no more broken glass, sir. Well, uh, cut the feet off that dead horse. We're gonna, we're gonna shoot those horses' feet now. Uh, horses' feet, sir? Uh, will the cannon fire them? The cannon will fire anything I tell it to fire. My name isn't Periwinkle Von Twinkletoes. I, I mean Ben McCulloch. Uh, ben ended the war with the rank of major. And I'm sure that they fired standalone horseshoes, by the way, not horseshoes still attached to the horse's feet. I'm probably sure of that. Uh, McCulloch also distinguished himself at the Battle of Plum Creek in 1840. Now, the Battle of Plum Creek was uh, fought in the aftermath of the Council House fight, uh, in which many of the Comanche warriors' chiefs and their women were killed. This is a, this is a dark period, a uh, uh, <laughs> dark little moment for the Texas Rangers for sure. On March 19, 1840, a delegation of Comanche chiefs met with the officials of the Republic of Texas in San Antonio. The meeting took place under an observed truce with the purpose of negotiating the exchange of captains, captives excuse me, and ultimately facilitating peace after two years of war. The Comanche sought to obtain recognition of the boundaries of their homeland while the Texans wanted the release of Texan and Mexican citizens held prisoner by the Comanches. One of these prisoners was Matilda Lockhart, a 16-year-old American settler who had been captured with her sister in 1838. She claimed that her captors had physically and sexually abused her. Burn scars, coupled with the mutilation of her nose, supported these stories. She also said that 15 other captives remained in Comanche hands and that the tribe's leader, leaders intended to ransom these hostages one at a time. Well, the council ended with 12 Comanche leaders shot to death inside the council house, 23 others shot in the streets of San Antonio, and 30 taken captive after a big guns blaze and ambush. The incident ended any chance for peace and led to years of further hostility and war. Man, war was so savage uh, on both sides, on both sides. I mean, you know, in this incident, you know, uh, yeah, the fucking Texans ambushed them. They ambushed a peace party. It's fucked up. You know, definitely fucked up. Also fucked up to have a fucking captive teenage girl that they're raping. A lot of people um, were scalped on both sides. I didn't realize that was on both sides. Uh, you know, you always hear about the uh, the tribes scalping uh, American settlers. Well, uh, a lot of frontiersmen uh, fucking took to scalping as well. And would just, you know, scalp the, scalp, uh, the Native Americans. Uh, what's insane about the scalping, by the way, side note on that, is sometimes scalping victims survived. Let me tell you a horrific tale of Robert McGee. In 1864, 13-year-old Robert McGee was headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his parents. They died along the way, and the boy, Orphan, continued the journey with the wagon train bringing supplies to New Mexico. Somewhere in the western reaches of Kansas, the soldiers tasked with guarding the wagon train got delayed, and the civilians were set upon by a band of brule Sioux Indians led by their chief, Little Turtle. The drivers and teamsters of the wagon train were no match for the uh, native warriors, and they were all tortured and killed. Young McGee watched helplessly as their blood was shed, and then he was taken before Little Turtle. The chief decided that he would not kill the boy himself, and he put a bullet... Oh, I'm sorry, he, that he would kill the boy himself, and he put a bullet in McGee's back. The boy fell to the ground, still alive and unconscious, and Little Turtle put two arrows through him, pinning him down. And then the chief took out his blade and removed 64 square inches from McGee's head. 
fuck, started just behind his ears. All while the boy was awake, and somehow he survived that. Uh, when the soldiers uh, finally caught up with the wagon train, they found a horrible massacre with everyone scalped. But as the soldiers picked through the bodies, they found McGee and another boy had survived. They were rushed to Fort Larned, uh, where the other boy died. Somehow, the scalpless McGee survived the experience and many years beyond. Uh, there was a picture uh, taken of him years later in 1890, so 26 years later, uh, when McGee told his story to a local newspaper. And I, I, I'm putting that uh, picture up on the website. That'll be at timesuckpodcast.com in the episode description. It's fucking horrific. And so I just kind of like, you know, bring these things up back inside where I notice on the internet when I'm researching stuff, especially on YouTube videos, there's a lot of like the fucking races, pieces of shit, you know, Texas Rangers, you know, killing Native Americans who are on their own land. Yes, you have a valid argument with that. But then also there was a lot of like, like horrific violence going back the other way. And, you know, the whole world has been settled by various people. So, you know what? It's just kind of the way the fucking cookie crumbles. I know that's that, that might come across as insensitive, but I fucking hate it when people get so bogged down and like, well, these are fucking evil assholes. Are they evil assholes? They they won. They won. They took over some more territory. That has happened throughout. Is Alexander the Great? I guess he was an evil asshole then. You know, uh, I guess, you know, Napoleon was an evil asshole. Just anybody who's conquered anything was an evil asshole. If you want to look at it that way. You know, like, like there's this is weird. Some people get so attached to like, like in the Native American thing, for example, like how dare the Europeans, like what fucking monsters they were to take over. And yeah, they did, they did do a lot of fucked up stuff, but that's, that's like the history of the world. That shit has just always happened. And again, it doesn't make it right, but also like there was never like this inherent thing of like, oh, you happened to show up here first. There was never like a finder's keeper's kind of, you know, uh, policy that everyone agreed to at the beginning of human civilization. It's like, okay, whoever gets to your place first, you get to live there however you want forever. That's just, that's just like, eh, this is never how the world worked. Okay. So just trying to give a complete picture here uh, of both sides. 1849, McCulloch joined many of uh, a bunch of other fortune seekers who headed to California during the gold rush. Uh, by the time the Civil War broke out, he came back because the dude apparently liked to fight. Uh, and in May 6, 1861, became a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. Uh, McCulloch commanded a wing of the army uh, as it approached a Union force led by General Samuel Curtis in northwestern Arkansas in March 1862. Curtis, Curtis took up a defensive position around Elkhorn Tavern and waited for the Confederates to attack. On the night of March 6th, McCulloch marched his troops around Curtis's right flank and prepared for an early morning assault on March 7th. Curtis discovered the movement and blocked McCulloch's advance. That day, at the Battle of Pea Ridge, Curtis held off a furious attack by McCulloch's force. McCulloch rode forward to monitor his men's progress and emerged from some brush directly in front of a Union regiment, identifiable by his trademark black velvet suit. Uh, he didn't like uniforms. McCulloch was killed instantly by a volley from the Yankees. His successor, General James McIntosh, was killed minutes later, and the leader's Confederates retreated. McCulloch's death was a turning point in the battle, and the Confederates' defeat ensured Union domination of northern Arkansas for the rest of the war. Uh, I love that he wore a black velvet suit into battle. I mean, it is one thing to go into battle. I cannot imagine riding a horse into a fucking field of constant gunfire. I can't, I truly can't. Uh, but I think it's like another thing even beyond that to just be like, you know what, put, put on, put on the velvet fucking suit today. Hey, hey, uh, wife, hand me the black velvet suit. I'm going to put that on before I ride into battle. That's some eccentric frontiersman shit. Okay, so let's talk about Sam Walker. 
the man who escaped from Mexico and helped develop one of the uh, baddest guns in the history of the Wild West. Samuel Hamilton Walker was born in Maryland in 1815 and came to Texas in 1842, joining a volunteer army soon thereafter. Uh, He participated in the ill-fated Somerville Expedition in 1842 and 1843. The Somerville Expedition was a punitive expedition against Mexico in retaliation for three predatory raids made by Mexican armies upon Texas in 1842. And again, I say predatory raids. Yeah, we were making a predatory raid right back. Uh, remember, uh, just like I mentioned earlier uh, that the Native Americans didn't have some inherent right to keep North America forever. Uh, you know, we Americans have no right to keep North America forever either. And and back at, at this point in, in history, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the Texans have no inherent claim to that land. It's just like everybody is fucking being assholes to everybody. Well, on October 3rd, 1842, President Sam Houston ordered Alexander Somerville to organize the militia and volunteers and invade Mexico if the strength, equipment, and discipline of the army indicated a reasonable hope of success. Volunteers poured into San Antonio, eager to pursue the enemy and invade Mexico for glory and plunder. Numbering approximately 700 men, the expedition left San Antonio on November 25th. It numbered 600. 83 men by the time it reached Laredo, because people died a lot back then. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they captured Laredo on December 8th. Joseph L. Bennett and 185 men then returned home on December 10th. I guess they got what they wanted. Somerville, with a little over 500 men, captured the Mexican town of Guero next. But he knew without reinforcements it was a suicide mission to continue further on into Mexico and try and march on Mexico City. And on December 19th, Somerville, recognizing the failure of his expedition and fearing disaster if he continued, orders his men to disband and return home by the way of Gonzales. Well, the Texans were so disappointed with the order to disband that only 109 or 189 men and officers obeyed. Some 308 men, including Sam Walker, one of those fucking crazy rangers, uh, under five captains and commanded by William S. Fisher, continued to Mexico on the Muir expedition. Think about that, how crazy that is. Like 300 dudes are like, no, no, we'll fucking do it. We'll just take it. That really is kind of part of like the uh, <laughs> Texas Ranger kind of ethos when you look into their history there was all these battles where it'd just be a very small group of rangers you know very much outnumbered and just being like no fuck it we're good we're good very like kind of like the spartans almost uh the expedition set out on december 20 uh 40 men under thomas j green floated downstream in four vessels captured near guero a small group of texas rangers serving as a spy company under ben mcculloch operated along the west bank of the river the main body of men under fisher went down the east side on December 22nd, the 308 Texans reached a point on the east bank of the Rio Grande opposite Mir, and McCulloch's spy company was sent to re- reconnoiter the town. They found that Mexican troops were assembling along the river, advised Fisher against crossing, and abandoned the expedition when their advice was not heeded. Thereupon, John R. Baker, sheriff of Refugio County, succeeded to the command of the spy company, leaving a camp guard of 45 men. Fisher and the remainder of his men crossed the river on December 23rd and entered Mir without op- opposition. A requisition for supplies levied against the town was fulfilled by late afternoon, but there were no means for transporting the goods to the river, and the Texans had no desire to carry the goods on their backs. When the uh, 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 Alcalade promised to have the supplies delivered the next day to the Texas camp, the Texans withdrew from Mir, taking the uh, Alcalde with them to guarantee delivery of the supplies. All day... On December 24, the Texans waited in vain for delivery of the goods. During the morning, A.S. Holderman, who had crossed the river to look for horses, was captured by a small detachment of Mexican cavalry. His journal revealed to the Mexicans the size, character, and organization of the Texan force. On December 25th, Fisher learned from a captured Mexican that General Pedro de Ampuidia had arrived at Mir 
and prevented delivery of the supplies. The Texans decided to go after their rations. On the afternoon of December 25th, Christmas Day, a camp guard of 42 men under Oliver Buckman was posted, and 261 Texans crossed the Rio Grande once more, attacked Mir, and fought until the afternoon of December 26th. Outnumbered almost 10 to 1, uh, Mexican losses were 600 killed and 200 wounded uh, as against 30 Texans killed and wounded. These guys were really good at fighting. Uh, but the Texans were hungry, they're thirsty, their powder uh, is almost exhausted, uh, their discipline's beginning to crack, and Puidi adopted a suggestion of sending a white flag to the Texans and demanding their surrender, and the ruse was successful. The captured Texans uh, were sentenced to execution after being captured, or after surrendering. But on December 27th, Ampuita had the execution decree, decree reversed. The able-bodied prisoners were marched through the river towns uh, to Antemoros, where they were held until ordered to Mexico City. En route to the capital, they planned their escape frequently. Uh, fin- fin- finally, at Salado, on February 11th, 1843, a successful break was carried out. For seven days, the Texans headed towards the Rio Grande, but in trying to pursue a circuitous route through the mountains, during the dry season, they became separated and lost. So that fucking sucks, you know? They get away. They get the mountains, and they're like, ah, shit, we don't have a map. We have no idea where we are. After extreme suffering, they surrendered in small groups, uh, came back to Mexican troops who were looking for them. Uh, in the end, only three members of the expedition actually escaped to Texas. The 176 recaptured Texans, including Sam Walker, were returned to Salado. Upon learning of the escape, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana ordered that those who had fled be executed but Governor Francisco uh, Mejia of the state of Coelho refused to obey the order, and the foreign ministers in Mexico were able to get the decree modified. The government then ordered that every tenth man be executed. The 17 uh, men who were selected for execution uh, in what is now known as the Black Bean episode were blindfolded and shot. And this is how they decided who, who died. They had a jar of beans, and in this jar of brown beans, there were 17 black beans. And if you pick one of the black beans, you got shot. Oh, man, I wonder if any of the guys who survived uh, could handle beans after that. (laughs) Or I wonder if, like, black beans would be a trigger for you after that experience. Uh, Would you like pinto refried or black beans on your burrito today? I'll kill you! I'll kill you! You say black bean again, I'll fucking kill you! Say it again! Uh, So, pinto or refried then? I don't care if it's three fried green beans, okay? Just as long as it's not black beans, you son of a bitch! During the months of June, July, and August 1843, the Texans, who didn't draw a black bean, did road work near Mexico City. In September, they were transferred to the Perote Prison, where the San Antonio prisoners, whom they had set out to liberate, were being held. A few of the mere men escaped while stationed in the vicinity of Mexico City. Others tunneled out of Perote uh, and succeeded in reaching home. A few of the wounded, who had been left at Mir, recovered, bribed the guard, and they escaped. Many of the men died in captivity from wounds, disease, and starvation. From time to time, a few of the prisoners uh, would be released at the request of certain officials in the U.S. and others at the request of foreign governments. Uh, The last of the mere men were released by Santa Ana on September 16, 1844. All in all, uh, Sam Walker, before he escaped, spent two years as part of that captivity. And then Walker, Texas Ranger, not Chuck Norris, joined the Texas Rangers basically as soon as he got back in 1844 and fell under the command of Captain John Coffey Hayes. Uh, Soon promoted to captain himself, he led a Ranger company during the Mexican-American War, uh, serving with Jenry... General Zachary Taylor and General Winfield Scott's armies. God, he didn't waste any time. Uh, that's always, that stuff's always crazy too. Like he could have came back and be like, you know what? I'm gonna fucking farm. I'm gonna have a nice little plot of land. I'm gonna calm. I'm gonna calm the fuck down. I'm gonna enjoy my life. But he's like, no, nah, let's let's get right back there and fight. I just I, they've held me for two years and I want to kill everyone who held me. Uh, well, this guy Walker Texas Ranger, not Chuck Norris. 
Uh, also had time right before he went back to fighting to uh, take a trip to New York City, meet with gunmaker Sam Colt, and create a new weapon based on the then-popular five-shot Colt Patterson revolver with many enhancements such as adding a six-round and uh, making it powerful enough to kill either a man or a horse with a single shot and making it quicker to reload. The Colt Walker revolver would become one of the most feared, if not the most feared, handgun of the 19th century. In striking power, it rivaled army muskets and even rifles at 100 yards as a pistol. That's insane. Uh, Up until this time, uh, a lot of rangers used single-shot revolvers. And so, uh, you know, Walker wasn't having that, and this was a huge upgrade on that. He wanted to be able to shoot six times without having to stop to reload, and he wanted to be able to shoot fucking six horses in a row if he needed to, I guess. Uh, after arriving with his new company at Veracruz, Mexico, Walker was detailed on May 27, 1847 to the 1st Pennsylvania Volunteers, stationed at Castle San Carlos de Perote, uh, to counter Mexican guerrilla activities between Perote and, y- and Yalapa. On October 5, 1847, Walker left Perote with General Joseph P. Lane to escort a supply train to Mexico City, according to J.J. Oswell. Uh, Oswandel, uh, author of Notes on the Mexican War, who wrote about the incident, Walker grew increasingly embittered against the enemy. Should Captain Walker come across guerrillas, God help them, for he seldom brings in prisoners. The captain and most all of his men are very prejudiced and embittered against every guerrilla in the country. So apparently, uh, his time as a prisoner of war left him uh, very angry, inspired him to build a bigger gun, and just made him, uh, gave him an insatiable bloodlust to just to fucking kill Mexican, uh, Mexican soldiers, I guess. Well, en route to Mexico City, Lane was informed of a sizable enemy force at Huamantla and ordered an attack. With Walker's mounted rifles in the lead, the assault force reached Huamantla on October 9th. During the spirited contest that followed, Walker was either shot in the back or killed by a man on foot carrying a lance, dead at 30. Following his death, his unit took revenge on the community of Huamantla, and Walker was buried at Hacienda Tamaris. In 1848, his remains were moved to San Antonio on April 21st, 1856, as part of the Battle of San Jacinto celebration. He was reburied in the Oddfellow Cemetery in San Antonio. Now let's skip ahead a bit uh, into the late 1800s to talk about John Harris Rogers. John Harris Rogers, captain in the Texas Rangers, uh, was born in Guadalupe County, Texas on October 19th, 1863, joined the Rangers in 1882, served as a sergeant under Captain John A. Brooks, became a captain himself in 1892. Rogers was a modest and soft-spoken man uh, with a stocky build and mustache. He was uh, wounded in a shootout with the Connor Gang in the Piney Woods of East Texas at Laredo, where he was enforcing a quarantine regulation during a smallpox epidemic. Uh, and as a result of his wound in Laredo, his arm was shortened, after which he used a specially constructed Winchester rifle. And he just kept on rangering. Unbelievable. He's like, yeah, fuck it. I got a smaller arm now. Whatever. I can still pull the trigger. Give me a gun. As the head of a ranger company in the field, Captain Rogers had to investigate crimes and carry out administrative tasks from recruiting and firing personnel to organizing scouting parties or filing detailed reports with his superiors in Austin. And the rangers had transitioned uh, from a paramilitary group to, uh, you know, the premier law enforcement agency around this time. Rangers uh, tracked a noted gunfighter, John Wesley Harden, killer of almost 30 men uh, to Florida, captured him in 1877, all right, just before... uh, you know, John Rogers' time. Uh, Texas Ranger George Harold uh, tracked down and killed notorious bank and train robber Sam Bass in 1878 in Round Rock, Texas. And many fugitives were brought to justice as the century wound to a close under the guidance of rangers like John Rogers. Yeah, the, the definitely like the last, you know, uh, 30, 40 years of the rangers in the 19th century, they definitely made that transition from kind of paramilitary to law enforcement. In 1913, uh, President Woodrow Wilson appointed John Rogers United States Marshal for the Western District of Texas. Uh, He held this position for eight years, and then he served once again as a ranger captain from 1927 until he died in 1930 at the age of 67. 
And then there's Frank Hamer from the Bonnie and Clyde episode. But before we check in with Frank, uh, let's find out what various geniuses have been saying uh, about Rangers on the internet with my new favorite segment, Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Holy racial anger. My God. Read the comments on some YouTube Ranger videos, and you get a lot of people who really hate the Rangers uh, for the atrocities they committed against the uh, Mexican people and Native Americans. And, and you get a lot of uh, people who are just very racist against uh, Mexicans and Native Americans uh, kind of coming back the other way. Yeah, a lot of, lot of craziness underneath these videos. And again, the Rangers did commit atrocities. But uh, again, uh, also, uh, atrocities were committed on both sides. So I'm uh, going to try and skip uh, over most of the racial back and forth in today's segment. So much racial stuff on YouTube. Uh, clearly a hot topic in many people's minds. I'll be honest, I don't actually think about it that much. You know, I teach my kids to judge people on their character and that race, gender, sexual orientation don't matter. And I just try and focus on pushing things forward where we don't even think until, you know, we get to a place where we don't even think about it. Uh, I try not to think about it, but again, I'm also white and I'm living in Idaho. So let's be, let's be fucking honest. Uh, I can choose not to deal with it because it's not my face. You know, I'm lucky enough not to encounter racism and not to be the victim of racism. Uh, and I wish no one had to be the victim and no one had to deal with it. Such a waste of energy to hate based on pigment. So, such, so much nonsense. Uh, anywho, anywho, uh, after reading a preposterous amount of back and forth uh, racism, uh, I decided to leave YouTube for a second. I'll come back to it here at the end uh, and head over to Amazon. See what people are saying in the book review section of some Texas Ranger literature. Well, Philip G. Caulfield uh, gave Stephen L. Moore's book, Texas Rising, the epic true story of the Lone Star Republic and the rise of the Texas Rangers, 1836 to 1846, one star, because he was, quote, not looking for the book, thought I was getting the movie. Oh, Phil, uh, you're given a book. You clearly didn't read one star because you wanted the movie, even though there couldn't be more clues that you were looking at the book, like the option to buy an either hardcover or Kindle edition, you fucking moron. Remember the last hardcover movie you watched? It's not the book's fault. You're too stupid to buy things online. All right, I get being annoyed. We all make mistakes. But then giving the book a one-star review after you know that you made the mistake? Give yourself one star, you fucking idiot. You're the one who messed up. Uh, another Amazon user, David Sherman, seemed to take a page out of Philip's playbook. He gave 12 years in the saddle for law and order on the frontiers of Texas, a book written, written by Sergeant William John L. Sullivan, one star, saying, tried to download it, never could find it. Probably a fault of my computer and not Amazon. Probably my fault. So he does think, you know, it's apparently probably a guy who messes up a lot on this kind of stuff. He's like, you know, I messed up, but uh, I'm still going to go lower the rating of someone else's artistic work to needlessly hurt their future sales because that's the kind of person I am. God, there's a lot of fucking terrible people on the internet. Uh, and then uh, Mark Thompson, uh, when I went back to YouTube after looking at a few Amazon things, he made a rookie move on YouTube uh, where he asked for other commentators to clean up their act on a, on a YouTube video uh, regarding the history of the Alamo. Mark Thompson five months ago said, 90% of the comments here have nothing to do with the clip. Instead, it's a bunch of drunks, idiots, and drunken idiots spouting insults and making a mockery of the Alamo and those glorious heroes who fell there. Please respect them and remember the Alamo appropriately. Oh, Mark, what are you fucking thinking? No one responds to this kind of stuff on the web. No one's like, you know what? He's, he's right, guys. He's right. Let's only leave nice comments. Uh, I guess Mark was tired of comments like Forget the Alamo by Aldous Huxley uh, <laughs> or Yankee Savages, dot, 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 9-11, dot, 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 Jews, dot, 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 New World Order by Peter O. I don't even, I don't even know what that's about. 
Uh, maybe he's getting sick of comments uh, by by people like Joseph uh, Glasner, who who said, uh, "I know why too much know about the Alamo." Uh, again, no idea what that's about. But you know, uh, of course, uh, Marx, please fall on the deaf ears of the trolls, because one of the very next comments after he leaves his comments from Caesar Sanchez says, "Fuck all you putos! Texas belongs to Mexico, and Mexicans made Texans." Fucking out. Sorry, Mark. You appealed to reason, but the comment section of the internet knows no reason, for it is populated largely by idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. internet. Okay, back to a little more Ranger before we get out of here. We got Frank Hamer. Francis Augustus Hamer, born March 17, 1884, in Fairview, uh, Texas, Wilson County. In 1894, he worked in his father's blacksmith shop, uh, where he developed the nickname Frank the fucking Hammer Hamer. Now, he didn't have that nickname, but he should have. How did he not? His last name's Hamer, and he worked in the blacksmith shop. Uh, after Frank Hamer uh, helped capture a horse thief uh, on the ranch where he uh, began to work after working for his dad's blacksmith shop, uh, local sheriff recommended him to the Texas Rangers, and he joined in eight. Or excuse me, joined in 1906. Became part of a company that patrolled the South Texas border, and then left the Rangers periodically over the years to take different law enforcement jobs. Uh, you know, uh, he served as the city marshal of Navasota, Texas, uh, as a special officer for the city of Houston, Texas, and as a federal prohibition officer here and there. In the 1920s, Hamer was a key figure in preserving law and order in the Texas oil boom towns, uh, and he ended up getting in over 50 gunfights. That's a lot of gunfighting. Uh, he's an expert with the gun, practiced long-range handgun shooting because he said a man don't know when he might have to shoot at a distance and not have a rifle ready. Favorite handgun was a single-action Colt 45 that he called Old Lucky. Uh, C-engraved, four three-quarter-inch barreled blue revolver, revolver uh, with carved pearl stocks. Beautiful. Throughout his life, he was a private man, would not discuss his gunfights, and refused to say how many men he killed. Just like Albert and Buds. He's one of those guys. One of those guys could have been Frank Hamer. Uh, he dealt with armed smugglers, bootleggers, bandits throughout the area throughout his career. By 1922, he'd become a senior ranger captain in Austin. 1928, he took on the Texas Bankers Association uh, reward ring. Hamer charged that some people were framing others and also tracking down and killing small-time outlaws to collect the banker's $5,000 reward for every dead bank robber. Uh, once the scam was made public, the Bankers Association changed their policy to a reward for every legally killed bank robber. That's probably a good call. Uh, he retired over the whole Ma Ferguson political fiasco of 1933, but came out of retirement in 1934, as you know, if you've been listening to the episodes, to take on a job as a special investigator to track down Bonnie and Clyde, uh, which he does track down, and then he does, you know, does kill them. Uh, during the 1930s, Hamer worked for various oil companies and shippers, helping to prevent strikes and breaking up mobs. He was called again to Ranger duty in 1948 by Governor Coke Stevenson to help check election returns in Jim Wells and Duval County in the U.S. Senate race. And check this shit out. In 1939, he and 49 other retired Texas Rangers offered their services to King George VI to help protect the United Kingdom in case of Nazi invasion. He's 54 years old at this point, and he's just like, you know, you want the Nazis stopped? You want them stopped? We'll just bring 50 of us former Rangers, 50 of us middle-aged former Rangers over to Europe, and we'll fix that shit right now. And that is uh, doing stuff like that is why it was often said that Frank had uh, trouble walking because his balls were so big. No one said that. Uh, by the time this guy retired for good in 1949, he'd been wounded 17 times and left for dead four times. Again, can't imagine being that guy. Can't imagine sitting on a recliner, <laughs> thinking about reflecting on all the times you were shot. 
Oh, and I could go on and on about these tough guys. I, I know I've gone on a while already. Uh, we could tell hundreds of hours of tales about their battles. You know, were they good guys? Were they bad guys? You know, they were both. Some were good. Some were bad. A lot were in the middle. Uh, I think they were mostly good by far, and they were definitely brave. You know, that's a, that's a weird a logic fallacy we get into sometimes with these uh, historical figures where you can say, like, oh, this person was this and that, these bad characteristics, so they couldn't been uh, – had, had a positive attribute like bravery. No, you could be, like, a brave racist, for example. That's possible, you know? You could fucking th- throw yourself out into battle with a lot of bravery and still be like, fuck Mexicans. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive, you know? <laughs> it doesn't make being racist good at all, but it doesn't make you less brave if you have the, the bravery. Two separate things. And, uh, yeah, did sometimes, you know, did they massacre innocent people? Yeah, they did. But they also saved a lot of, uh, uh, lives too. A lot of saved, uh, you know, protected innocent settlers who were just trying to farm and get on with their lives. You know, I think I just, violence was just a product of that era. It was a really a, a kill or be killed time. It's crazy to me, uh, uh, how they came out of the beginnings of Texas when Texans didn't have any consistent protection from any government. You know, there's just settlements of Americans who chose to live on Native American soil where they're being attacked by various tribes. There's constant tension between Spanish settlers, American settlers, Mexican government. Uh, the settlers recruited the toughest men they could find to protect them, and those men formed the core of what would become the Texas Rangers, a badass group of frontiersmen who'd play a large part in breaking Texas away from Mexico and leading it to become part of America. Pretty intense, uh, pretty intense history, man. Can't imagine being out there on those trails riding a horse and just uh, shooting and being shot at for your career. I uh, hope you enjoyed these tales. I, ho- I hope you made you think about what it must have been like to live during those times of turmoil. Uh, there's plenty we can complain about today, but we've got it real good com- compared to the days of yesteryear. I can't imagine marching up against Comanches or Apaches or Mexican Army on horseback with that rifle in my hand, pistol in my hip, hoping my aim is a little better than my enemy's aim, hoping I don't get caught by a stray bullet I never saw coming, catch an arrow, wake up to the beginnings of being scalped. Crazy fucking times. Love reading about it in my nice, air-conditioned home in a quaint neighborhood in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where my biggest problem at the moment is having to make a bunch of calls later today to my bank and some other places and knowing that I'll be put on hold. It's going to be super annoying, but I prefer being put on hold uh, to being shot at. Uh, Very much so. So uh, hope you are enjoying your 21st century comfort as well. Now let's hit the old days one more time with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the first leader of the official Rangers was 31-year-old Major Robert McAlpin Williamson, a man whose leg was permanently bent into a 90-degree angle. In order to walk, a wooden leg had to be fastened to his knee, which led to the nickname Three-Legged Willie, and he still fought in battle. All right, number two, in the early 19th century, the Mexicans and Texans battled over land the Native Americans still considered their own. Not long after the French, Spanish, and Americans uh, were also dividing up the land the tribe still thought was theirs. And you thought your neighbors sucked. At least they're not kicking your door in and fighting over which one of them gets to take your shit. Number three, Sam Walker, the original Walker, Texas Ranger, joined the Rangers to fight Mexico immediately after escaping two years of captivity in Mexico. And right away, he had a bigger gun designed to shoot Mexicans with, and then he died in a battle against Mexicans when one of them shot him a few months later. What a good reminder that sometimes, when it comes to grudges, it's best just to kind of let it go. Number four, Texas was once an independent nation after winning its independence from Mexico. They even had their own embassy in London. There was once a French French embassy in Austin. It's one of only three states to have once been an independent nation along with Hawaii and Vermont. That's right, Vermont. Seriously, the Republic of Vermont existed from 1777 to 1791, uh, had their own currency, their own post office system. Look it up. 
And number five, some new info again, uh, more new info. The Rangers, though I didn't talk about their recent exploits, are still kicking ass today. In 1997, Texas Rangers, commanded by Captain Barry Caver, conducted successful hostage negotiations with the Republic of Texas, a militant political organization that claimed that Texas is still an independent nation. Uh, Texas Rangers are able to secure the release of all hostages and negotiate the surrender of most of those involved. Then in 2010, Texas Governor, then Texas Governor, Rick Perry, inducted Chuck Norris, Walker, Texas Ranger, into the real Texas Rangers as an honorary member uh, of the Rangers, just as Notre Dame once predicted. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well, thanks, Suckheads, for listening to some Texas-sized tales of heroism this uh, this week. Hope that wasn't too much info. Man, so much to cover. I kept going over it, going over it. Uh, couldn't have got through it without Sarah Lilly uh, helping to research that one. A lot of information. So thanks again to her uh, as her uh, being the intern uh, and member of the Bojangles research team. Uh, if you want to check out some of my stand-up, I'll be at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Atlanta, July 27th through 30. I'll be at the Tampa Improv, August 3 through the 6th. Uh, more dates at dancummins.tv, or you can just go and link to the tour dates at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, be sure to follow Time Suck on social media. Uh, it's uh, back in business, kicking out some new audio previews of the upcoming episodes on Fridays. Uh, other new fun weekly posts coming soon to at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash Time Suck uh, Podcast on Facebook. And, uh, and you can go to the episode description at timesuckpodcast.com if, uh, to click the links to get those great sponsored deals I talked about today. And you can spread the suck by sharing that Friday audio preview, giving people a little bit of taste, a little taste of the suck. Uh, next week, we're sucking on the king. Martin Luther King Jr. is getting sucked. Martin Luther King Jr., he of the I Have a Dream speech, was an American Baptist minister and activist who became the most visible spokesperson and leader of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. He led the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, uh, helped to organize the 1963 March on Washington, where he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. On October 14th, 1964, uh, King received the Nobel Peace Prize for combating racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. In 1965, he helped to organize the Selma to Montgomery marches. He opposed the Vietnam War, alienating many of his liberal allies with a 1967 speech titled Beyond Vietnam. He also seemed to take a page out of JFK's book when it came to marriage fidelity. He was a complex man. And in 1968, King was planning a national occupation of Washington, D.C. to be called the Poor People's Campaign when he was assassinated by James Earl Ray on April 4th in Memphis, Tennessee. And just like with JFK, there are many conspiracies about who really killed him, why he was really killed, etc. Did James Earl Ray do it? Did someone else? More conspiracy fun coming down the pipeline. Such a fascinating, important life. Can't wait to suck on it. So look forward to MLK. Keep spreading the suck. Thanks for picking up those sweet Bojangles teas made out of 213% imported koala anus treated with gerbil saliva. I'll be replenishing the missing sizes of the first two teas very soon. Uh, hit me up if you're an app developer and keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.